Well, I invite you to take your Bible and uh, turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Before I read the text, um, I just before and before I get to this, I, I want to just pause for a moment. I want to acknowledge something. Uh, if you've been tracking with me through Revelation, you might think, "Huh, he's he's talking about this in a way that's different than than I remember," and I, and I acknowledge that. Um, and I, I'm going to get a little wonky, a little theological wonky here. Some of you will know what I'm talking about, so just bear with me. Um, as uh, growing up in the in the church, I was exposed to a, a teaching regarding the end times. It was just kind of considered the default position, and, and I'll give you a name for it. It's called premillennial dispensationalism, and I'll describe it for you if you don't know what I'm talking about. It's that view that there's this distinction, this a saving distinction between national Israel and the church. So God's saving plan has a different plan for those. Uh, this, this view holds that the church will be removed from the world with a sudden taking up, a rapture of the church, which would inaugurate a, uh, a seven-year period of tribulation with an, a, a personal anti-Christ person during that time. The return of Christ following that and a literal on earth 1,000-year reign final, uh, followed by uh, a judgment and an eternal state. So if you read books by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth or if you indulged in those novels from Left Behind, that view, or if you saw the movie like I did when I was a kid, A Thief in the Night, that view was kind of laid out there. And, and I would say this, it was assumed to be the orthodox, it was assumed to be the biblical view um, as a default. And so if you held some other view, believers for the most part looked kind of askance, said, mm, I'm not so sure. Um, so this last week, and, and the reason I'm sharing this is last week I, I, I routinely listened to podcasts by... Um, uh, Albert Moeller, some of you are familiar with his, um, he has a daily briefing which he engages with current events. But he has this long-form podcast, usually an hour long. He calls it Thinking in Public, and what he'll do is interview various authors. Well, he happened to have this author on, uh, Daniel Hummel, and he wrote a book recently called The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. And what he does is he chronicles how an innovative, and I would say this innovative theological system, which is dispensationalism, uh, largely began with an Anglican cleric named John Nelson Darby in the mid-19th century. That's kind of when, when dispensationalism, it was fairly new at that point, and how it was embraced by the church, and now it's waning, and that's, that's just a reality. He describes it, but it kind of helped me understand where I was in this picture and, and frame for me some of the reasons why I no longer hold that view. So here's what you need to know overall. I encourage you to pick up that book by, by um, Daniel Hummel if you're interested in these things or just listen to the Thinking in Public podcast from last week. Uh, but that said, um, there are now in the church, evangelical church, broadly speaking, among those who view the Bible through a conservative lens, say this, this is literally God's word. Um, those who hold that view, um, there are varying views. I'm among them of a different view, and these three major views are shared across the uh, evangelical landscape. So that's, that's just the reality. 
And, um, and what we need, church family, is grace towards those who have a differing point of view. Uh, because somebody holds a different point of view doesn't mean that they're theologically um, liberal, okay? Don't, don't make that mistake. Um, I'll let you know, as elders, we're working through uh, some biblical distinctives. And one of the ones that we have uh, that we're going to be discussing tomorrow night is, is the idea of one of our distinctives as a church is that we don't have an eschatological distinctive. <laughs> so we don't say, this is what you must believe. And so that's why I say, much grace is needed, and you just need to know that uh, coming from your leadership. Some of our fellow, my fellow elders have a different view than me in Revelation, but I just have to preach it uh, as I see it. And uh, if you've got questions, you're welcome to email me or hit me up for a conversation about why I think what I think and, and where I get that in the Bible. Um, some of that will emerge over time. But I just lay that out for you. All right, now let's get to the text today. Uh, Revelation chapter 14, I'm looking at just verses 1 through 13 this morning. So let's give our attention to the reading God's word. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood a lamb, stood the lamb with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of its name. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me as we prepare? Our Father in heaven, without your spirit working in this room, nothing good can be accomplished. And I recognize, Father, my weakness, imperfect herald of a perfect truth. 
So we need you to do something that we can't. We need you to work in us your will. Plant your word in our hearts. And God, would you make us receptive to you, receptive to your word? Would you do that work of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ? That we together and individually may be vessels for glory to your name. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in the last chapter of Revelation, as we went through it last week, uh, in John's vision, we were, showed, we were shown how, how Satan works to gain the allegiance of people. And he does this by counterfeiting the works of God, ultimately leading them astray. Now, the reality for the saints, the people of God, the redeemed, is that the work of suffering will bring suffering and death. So he makes a mess of stuff. The world is influenced by him, and it ultimately will bring suffering and death for many who are saints. Now, as we come to to 14, chapter 14 here, what what happens is the view shifts now from, from the suffering, and it shifts over to a picture of the vindication and the victory of God's people. And along with that, the inevitable failure of the work of Satan and an ultimate judgment on the ungodly. That's what's in view here in chapter 14. So as we dig down into this passage this morning and consider its implication for our lives, as we consider its implications for the world, I've organized our thinking this morning for for my purposes under four headings, and I'll give them to you in advance. Now, the first one is a question. It's this. Are you in the choir? Are you in the choir? Second, repent while you can. Third, Babylon will fall. And we'll get to what that is in a moment. And finally, judgment is eternal. Are you in the choir? Question. Repent while you can. If you're not, Babylon will fall. And judgment, God's judgment, is ultimately eternal. Well, the first question, are you in the choir? I grew up in a family that was very musical. Um, and by the way, thank you, Stephen, for leading us this morning. And uh, you know, it was your second time and going through your orders. Like, there's, lots to, there's lots to remember up here, so uh, lots of grace. No, no worries about that. You did a great job. Uh, but I'm grateful for that. And, and, and I love serving here, but I'm grateful for the break. But anyway, um, my, man, my, my family was very, very musical. My, uh, my parents would often sing duets in church back in the day when they had this thing called special music. Uh, our church had a choir, and my dad was the director. Uh, he died uh, at a fairly young age, and uh, I was fairly young. And after a time, I, I took over uh, the, the directing of the choir at that church where I grew up. And I remember, I was always, uh, as the choir director, always trying to, to recruit for the choir. It was, it was challenging. Now, we didn't turn anyone away, uh, but we were looking for men and women who could read music. That was helpful. Also helpful was staying on pitch. That makes it more pleasant for the congregation to listen to. So read music, stay on pitch. Fairly low bar of expectation. Not pros, we're just people who could read some music and just kind of stay in the relative territory of the right pitch. That was our expectation. Well, in our chapter, we see that there's this heavenly choir 
But joining that choir has absolutely nothing to do with your musical ability, and we're going to look at that. Now, we see verse 1. Uh, John, in his vision, says, Then I looked. There's a lot of this repeated through Revelation. He sees this, then he sees this, then he sees this, then I looked. Well, he looked, and he sees the Lamb. And that's, of course, referring to Christ. We know that that from previous chapters. And, and he sees the Lamb in contrast to the last chapter of seeing the beast. Okay? And he sees him on Mount Zion. Now, that's a name for Jerusalem. But it is symbolic, Zion is symbolic in the Old Testament prophets as the place where God will rule over his people forever. So Zion it has this kind of eschatological end times flavor to it. It is the ultimate place where God will rule over his people forever. And I'll just take you to Psalm 2, which, which gives this picture and how's the, how it is picked up in the Old Testament, even by the psalmist, David in this case. As for me, Psalm 2. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is the Lord setting his king and referring to the Christ. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So Zion, that place where the Messiah will ultimately rule over God's people forever. Well, in verse 1, it continues. There in Zion with the Lamb is 144,000. Now, I take it it's the same 144,000 back in chapter 7 where, where it is described there in John's vision as representatives from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Some are absent. It's, a strange, it's, it's an interesting arrangement there if you look back in chapter 7. We dealt with that a couple months ago. But then I take it as well that, that from, from chapter 7 we are to understand that that is really a a symbolic representation of the entirety of the people of God because John says, Then I looked and saw a multitude that no one can number, a people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation on the earth. So I take it here, this is the same 144,000 representative of the whole people of God, a multitude that no one could number. And on these people, on the people of God, is the name the Father's name on their foreheads, and also the name of the Lamb. They are marked as belonging to the Father and the Lamb. Again, this is in contrast and distinct from those who have the mark of the beast in the last chapter. Those distinct from those who are, who are possessed by the spirit of the Antichrist, those who have denied the Son of God. These 144,000, this multitude, this representative of the whole people of God, they have been redeemed from the earth. That word redeemed means that they've been bought back. They've, they've been rescued from captivity in figurative Babylon. We'll get to that. And we're told in verse 4, and again, this is interesting language, they have not defiled themselves with women. They are virgins. Now, this is an interesting, interesting choice of words, an interesting picture. We have to understand that 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 uh, the scripture, it, this cannot deal, uh, I, I don't think it can be literal for the unmarried. The scripture really nowhere forbids sexual relations within the marriage covenant. So that would seem odd. And just, just to understand, the word there for virgin underneath it all is um, parthenos. That's the Greek word, chaste. And it can refer to a woman who has never known a man, referring to a man it can refer to a man who has abstained from uncleanness and sexual immorality 
that is related to religious practices, cultic, pagan religious practices. So the word has this range of application there. It doesn't only mean unmarried, chaste woman. So as well in the scripture, if we look back in the prophets again, because Revelation takes so much from, from the Old Testament, virgin there is a biblical image really for the whole nation. For example, Isaiah 37, 22, where, where the people of God are called the virgin daughter of Zion. Without the word, that same image is taken to apply to the new covenant people of God. Hear this. The new covenant people of God who are made pure by the washing of water with the word, Ephesians 5, 26. So I take it to be symbolic of their holiness. They have not bought into the idolatry, which is often okay, uh, associated, the idea of sexual immorality and, ID, and, and idolatry are often linked in the Old Testament. That, that idolatry is akin to unfaithfulness in marriage. God is our husband, if you will. And when we worship some other thing, the Bible calls it in very vivid language, especially in Ezekiel, whoring and unfaithfulness. So the purity of worship towards God. And so I take it that these people are, are, have their hearts towards the Lord. And we're also told these are ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They're followers of Jesus. They are disciples. They are disciples of all nations who have been taught to obey all that Jesus commanded in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Further, in verse 5, we're told that there's no lie in their mouth. They're, they're blameless. That is, and what that means is that really they hold to the testimony of Jesus. They do not fall for the deceptions of the beast. And because they have been redeemed from the earth, they have been made righteous through faith in Christ. That's, that's what it means to be redeemed. When you're bought back out of slavery to sin, God counts you righteous in his son. It doesn't mean that we are in this present life acting in a perfectly, in, in total perfection from the day we trust Christ forward. We know that's not true. We just have to look at our own lives, right? But our blamelessness before God is forever in Christ. That is where we get it. As the Reformers said, it's an alien righteousness. It's one given to us, not earned. We're also told that these that have been redeemed from the earth, they are they, the first fruits. First fruits. And again, the Old Testament, first fruits signifies God's right of ownership. So a first fruit offering said, this, this belongs to the Lord. And, and really, these are those who belong to the Lord as distinct from the common, that which is for just common use. So the first fruits from the earth are those that have been set apart for the Lord, distinct from those who have not. And what this does is it, it, it points to the holiness of true believers, that holiness which we're told in Hebrews, without which no one will see the Lord. And what's this multitude doing? They're singing a new song. 
Thus my question, are you in the choir? No one could learn it, we're told, except the 144,000. And because this is an innumerable multitude, it's loud. It's like the sound of thunder, yet it's beautiful, like, like harpists playing on their harps. So this is this picture that John sees. So let me ask you, do you know the song of the redeemed? Where you sit today, do you know the song of the redeemed? Now, knowing that is not about singing on key or reading music, though it is great to sing together, and I encourage it. But the song of the redeemed is only known by the redeemed because it's something that they have to experience. The song of the redeemed is expressed because the individual who knows it understands already the deception and futility of sin and Satan's lies. If you are among the redeemed, you get it. You truly see that the wages of sin is death. You understand that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Being redeemed and, and being able to sing that song means you know that you have the power of God in you to free you from the grip of sin and give you, this is unlike the world, give you a true desire for holiness. Only believers in Jesus truly want to be holy. If you don't want to be holy, if you don't want your life to be righteous, I don't think you belong to the Lord. God gives that to you. That's part of his gift. And when you desire holiness, it impacts your speech. It impacts your actions toward others. It impacts what you think about. It impacts what you, what you treasure the most. Being redeemed means that, that you are truly grateful, like, like a gratitude that, that is sometimes hard to put into words. Truly grateful when you think about where you could be. Grateful that God sent his son to be your savior. And I trust that, like me, you, you marvel in prayer. We ask God probably a lot of whys. But I think, why'd you save me? I'm undeserving. Which is the point. <laughs> You're undeserving. And if you understand that, you understand the magnitude of the salvation given into you, then you have that song in your heart. And it means that you rest in the fact that while you do not know all of the ways that God is working, you understand that he is working for your good in all things, in Rome, says Romans 8.28. And it means as well, being the redeemed and having that song, it means that you know that you follow the lamb wherever he goes. What that means is you, you want to learn from him by hearing his word through the Bible. It means that you want to imitate the character of Christ. You, you want to have that be the overflow of your life. That you want to obey him in all things. Now understand, this isn't a claim to perfection. It isn't, it, it, it's the desire of your heart. And when you see yourself fall short, you're driven to the place of confession and repentance before God. That's just a hallmark of what it means to belong to Christ. 
in an ultimate sense, it means that if you were forced, at the end of a barrel of a gun, forced to choose between denying Christ or staying alive, you could say with the Apostle Paul, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That song, that song will not ever be on your lips if it's not first in your heart. So let me ask you, are you a member of the choir? Well, brings me to the second heading here. If not, if not, repent while you can. Repent while you can. Uh, before, uh, before we had GPS in car navigation, you know this. Uh, the older people, of course, know this. <laughs> we had paper maps. That's what we did. We, and usually for long trips, I, I, I would make sure to have one in the car. But, you know, there were times. There were times when I... And it occasionally happens today when I, I actually don't pull the phone out to, to figure out where I'm going. I, I think I know where I'm going. I, I'm sure I know where I'm going. And, and Kathy will say, no, you're going the wrong way. She'll tell me that's, that's not the way to go. And I'm still convinced that I'm on the right path. And I get to where I think I was supposed to be, and then like, well, that, you were right. So much time was wasted because I didn't simply turn around. Just turn around. Now, you may be convinced in your own life and the direction you're going. But if you are going in the wrong direction, ultimately it will cost you far more than time. If you are on the path of evil, you need to repent, which means turn around. Turn around and turn to Christ to avoid judgment. We see this in verses 6 and 7, John sees an angel. That angel is proclaiming an eternal gospel, a forever gospel. And this message, we're told, it's intended for those who dwell on the earth from every nation, tribe, and language. It is a call to fear God, to, to understand that he's the one who created everything, to give him glory, to give him the worship due him. Why? Because judgment is at hand. Now, this gospel saves some. It is the same gospel that condemns others because it's rejected by them. This eternal gospel, this is the good news about Jesus Christ. And it's good news because it gives the opportunity to repent. It's good news because believing it changes everything. When you Turn to Christ. You're turning your back on sin. You're turning your back on the ways of evil. You're not claiming perfection. You're just saying, I don't want to go there. I want to go with Jesus. That's repentance. This gospel leads us there. In this same gospel, many here, if not all, hopefully all, probably not all, but most of you have believed this. You believe that the Son of God became a man. You believe that he lived that righteous life that you could not, that life that God requires of each of us. You believe that Jesus died vicariously, which means that in our place, so that by that act, we might be forgiven for our sin. We're forgiven for our failure to be righteous. 
in that act, we are absolved of the shame that goes with failure. And we believe, you believe, because of that gospel that Jesus rose again, proving that he is God, gaining victory for us over the power and the consequence of sin. And this is all for those who turn to him in faith. And again, at the same time, turning our backs on sin. Now, this truth seems to be lost on so many religious people. And I would say this, that the church in America is full of people that think that they're saved. They think that they're good with God because they simply believe there is a God. Or maybe they, they did something religious. At, at what, one time they prayed a prayer to ask Jesus into their hearts. Now, that's, that's terminology that you don't find in the Bible, by the way. I know what people mean by it. Maybe that religious thing was being baptized or participated in some other religious act or, or charity. Merely assenting to some fact about something or someone is not the same as trusting in that thing. Merely assenting to the existence of something is not the same as trusting that something. For example, you can look at a chair. I believe it exists. It's there. It's got four legs. It's good. But you're not trusting that chair, honestly, until you sit in it. You can believe it's there. Oh, there's Jesus. He's the Son of God. He died. He came out of the grave. Cool. That's nice. But if you stand before God and say, you know, I've been pretty good. You should accept me. You know what you're not doing? You've assented to the fact of Jesus. But you're not trusting him. You're actually trusting yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for sending Jesus. But, but I got it. I'm, I'm good. I, I can handle this. I'll, I'll take care of it, God. Just check my record. You'll like it. No. Absolute perfection. That's it. And you don't have it. I don't have it. So I need it as a gift, and that gift is Jesus. Like I said, that, that, that's lost in so many religious people. You see, true faith and repentance for sin are inseparable. You can't say that Jesus is Savior and Lord if you don't give him absolute authority to rule your life. It's just not possible. That doesn't exist. There's no Savior in Jesus without his absolute rule in your life. The two go together. Jesus said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself. Deny, deny, deny yourself. Take up your cross, the instrument of your execution. Consider yourself rule, dead, it's gone, it's over. Jesus is in charge. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's what it means to be counted among the redeemed. That's what it means to repent. The essentialness of this repentance, it, it was lost on people in Jesus' day too. It, uh, responding to the news of horrific injustice and also a tragic accident that resulted in, in gruesome death of several people, Jesus said this, and this is in Luke 13. He said this, do you think that they were worse offenders, these people who died, than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Were they worse because they died that way? No. 
Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repentance is necessary. There's no middle ground. There's no shades of gray. It's either or, repent or perish. But understand this. If you're, if you're not counted among the redeemed today, understand this. God is compassionate and patience, patient. He takes no delight in condemning. That's why the, the angel sent out the message. Worship God. Acknowledge him. God takes no delight in condemning. Through the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord said this, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked man, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die? Why will you die? Repent. Again, repentance is not a promise you make before God to never sin again. That's not possible. It's genuine grief before God for your sin. It's a true desire, trusting in God's power in your life to actually hate your sin and leave it behind. It is a daily, daily thing. And the wonderful thing is that the gospel, the gospel, the good news about Jesus is powerful. It has the power to bring people to repentance. I, I love this verse. It was so life-changing for me in terms of understanding salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, this message of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous will live by believing in Jesus. And we're told, because this angel's announcing it, this gospel is for those who dwell on the earth. And so between now and judgment, this gospel is for those who dwell on the earth. It is for those who are not presently counted among the redeemed. Now we know from the previous chapter that the names of the redeemed were written in the book of the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. That's chapter 13, verse 8. Only God knows who is and who is not on the list. So we're not to concern ourselves with that. But, but the evidence, the evidence that you or anyone is counted among the redeemed, the evidence of that is genuine repentance, turning from sin and evil and turning to faith in Christ. All of us, all of us were born by default into that place of alienation from God, set out of the kingdom of God. We are in the kingdom of darkness when you come into this world. But when you heard the gospel, God did this. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Quoting from 1 Peter 2, 9. He says to them, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's the redeemed. And brothers and sisters, we exist here as a church to build each other up in this faith, but to be a light to the world, to say, repent. Turn away from sin and turn to Christ. The call to believe is the call to repent. And so if you've not done so, listen to the message of the angel. God's hour of judgment is near. Come join the choir. Now, 
if you are in the choir, there's something you're going to know and you're gonna, something you're going to see from the text here. Babylon will fall. Babylon will fall. Now, a cursory uh, walk through the history of the world civilizations confirms this simple fact that even the greatest of civilizations have eventually crumbled and just disappeared. So you could look at Egypt, Rome, Greece, Assyria, Mongol, uh, the Persian, the Mayan, the Ottoman, Byzantium. They're all gone. They don't exist anymore. Human governments, they just simply cannot stand under the corrupting weight of their own hubris. It is not possible. They will eventually crumble and fall apart. And yes, even America. Now, the oldest civilization in the Bible was Babel. It was situated, if you look at the, the promised land, or the land of promise, it was situated east, or you could say east of Eden as well. Uh, it was in the Shinar Plain between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It became, really, Babel became symbolic of that place which was away from God. It was evidenced in Babel by their self-aggrandizing monument to their own ingenuity, that, that tower reaching to the heavens. You can look that up in Genesis 11.4. Babel, same word, Babylon, in Hebrew, same word. Babylon later overran the land of Judah. They destroyed the temple. They, they carried away its treasures. They burned the city. They killed so many and carried away many other Israelites into captivity. But Babylon didn't stand. It fell to the Persians in 539. That was predicted by the prophet Isaiah. Hear the words. Isaiah 29, 9, second part of the verse. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. So what's with this second angel here in verse 8 using the language of Isaiah in the end of Babylon? In Revelation, Babylon, just like Babel in Genesis, it's really symbolic of, of human civilizations that reject God and ultimately entice their people to immoral practices and idolatry. That's what it's symbolic of. It's the place, though, where God's people must live in exile and suffer the oppression of all of this stuff going on. And, and, we're, and we're, we're told this because that's what the beast has done in the world. The beast has created this Babylon, and it exists today. Babylon is exemplified, I would say, by the spirit of the communists in China, that totalitarian impulse in Russia, but it's also evidenced in the self-indulgence and the immorality of Western nations, this one included. Babylon is governmental power exerted to in, in influence and seduce its, its citizens to practice sexual immorality, both actually but also symbolically in promoting idolatry. And the angel here we see in Revelation, this messenger of God in this prophetic perfect, declaring Babylon has fallen, fallen, fallen is Babylon. So what do I take from this? Well, as the people of God, we, we've got to understand as we look out at the world, 
that there's this temptation that we all, I think, face. We've got to be aware of that. We, we put maybe too much confidence in the human structures around us. But just an example. And, and I know well-meaning Christians have said this. You know, if we just get prayer back in the schools, it will be all right. And, and maybe things would be okay in some sense. If we keep the Ten Commandments in, in the courthouse, it'll, it'll be all right. Or, or even looking forward, it, it will be all right if we can just get the right person in office as president. It, it will, all we need are, are just the right Supreme Court justices, and they can do some good. If we just elect the senator, this is the one, that congressman, if we get the right DA, all will be well. And i got to say this, history proves, and the Bible makes it clear, that it will be all gone. There can be righteous influence in ungodly places, and that's a good thing. It's a preservative. Christian brothers and sisters, be salt and light and use your citizenship. Use it well. And if you can get to a place where you can can slow the tide of, of corruption that is cursing through our government, do it. But don't put your hope in it. Because where the spirit of the Antichrist is weaving its way in and through our government authorities, it's going to fall. Because that's not the ultimate kingdom, right? Babylon has to fall because the right, rightful ruler is coming. And one day, Psalm 2, 7 to 9, will be fulfilled. Listen to it. Again, I tell of the decree read part of this before. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's, that day's coming. And when the angel declares that Babylon has fallen, it's because Christ has taken over to rule the nations. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, understand this. Right now, our home is in Babylon. This is where we live. And just like the prophet Jeremiah told the exiles, in Jeremiah 29, 4 through 8, he told them to live their lives. He told them, build houses, plant your gardens, marry, have children, seek the welfare of Babylon. That's what we're to do. And I already tried to make this case. We have to look beyond this present evil age and live in light of Christ's assured victory. So while we do that, be a good citizen. Vote, seek to influence laws for what is righteous. Do that. Oppose evil. Help the suffering. Let the light of Christ shine through you so that some may give glory to their Father who is in heaven, as Jesus commanded us to do. Hold out the good news for those who are seeking something better. And keep gathering like this. We do this to be reminded that the world the way it is, that's not your eternal home if you're in Christ. Well, finally, I'm going to move on here. Judgment is eternal. That's the last heading here. Now, we have laws, we have police, we have prosecutors, all for the purpose of making sure that justice is served, right? But I was thinking about this. If you want to formulate a standard of justice 
solely based on how we have done it, okay? To set aside the laws, just look at what we've done, right? And establish some kind of standard based on that. Just how prior crimes have been prosecuted. You're going to find what you'll find is this general laxity, increasing laxity over time. And that's not hard to observe, is it, right? Just, just be aware of current events. Theft and rioting are handled in different states. It's, it's different, right? Certain powerful people can get away with things that regular citizens never could. <laughs> just watch the political discourse. It, it's craziness, right? And in my mind, in my mind, the simple reason that this happens, the, the, the reason that things things don't seem to be even in regards to justice is because these things are being adjudicated by imperfect people. Guilty people judging other guilty people. That's going to be a problem for real justice, isn't it? But get this. There is one good and perfect eternal judge, and that is God. And he will execute justice, and he will set everything right. And this is what the third angel is declaring in John's vision. He makes this announcement. If anyone worships the beast and its image, these are marked for judgment explained this way. And listen, it's harsh language, but it's God's word. He also... Okay, those who take the mark of the beast and worship its image. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is the same thing that Jesus taught about judgment. He said, described it as a place of outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then later in Mark 9, using the language of Isaiah 66, 24, Jesus described God's eternal judgment as hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The worm keeps eating, the fire keeps burning. And notice as well from what John sees in his vision and says, this judgment will take place, as the angel announced, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Listen, I understand this. Many professing Christians have so struggled with this. They've, they've even questioned the love of God to mete out this kind of punishment that just doesn't end. And they might ask, and I've heard the question, why doesn't God just blot them out from existence? I had a theology prof in seminary. He struggled with that. He wrote that God is loving, and he was right. But his conclusion to the love of God was to hold out the idea that indeed God's punishment is what is called annihilation. That's not anywhere in the Bible, so I'm not really sure of how he, uh, an otherwise brilliant theologian, could come to that conclusion, but that's what he held. And I think in some sense, Christians think, well, maybe that would be better. You know, when Moses was negotiating, <laughs> I say that because that's how it looks in the text in Genesis, he was negotiating with God for the city of Sodom. He asked this rhetorical question, really, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Well, of course, the answer is yes. 
God did what is just, and he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, on a philosophical level, just regarding this, the idea that God's judgment and his punishment is eternal, think of it this way. Again, purely philosophical, very basic level. If God's gifts are eternal, if they are, and they are, then rebelling against him and demanding independence cannot be limited in any way. God offers an eternity with himself, pouring out his goodness, exponentially increasing day by day. If you say, thanks but no thanks, I'll take it from here. Then in the same way God's gifts are eternal, then you're saying, well, I'll take it on my own forever. It's horrific, but it's just. See, the only just response of God to people rejecting his eternal provision is eternal privation. If anyone rejects all that God offers to himself, they're asking for eternal self-government. And that is hell. So there's really no neutral position here, too. You need to understand this. They're talk the angel says those who've received the mark of the beast, to reject the rule of God is to take the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is upon all those whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. There's not kind of a, a neutral position like, well, there's the people that take the beast and there's kind of the in-betweeners. There's no in-betweeners. These are the ones who do not have the names of God on their forehead. They do not have the seal of the Holy Spirit. Those who are not in the heavenly choir. Now, if we Come back to the beginning of Revelation. John was given this vision. He was told things that must soon take place. And it's really an overarching view of history between Christ's first and second coming. It could happen any day. But as of right now, in this very moment, our Lord has not yet returned. So this judgment has not happened yet. What this reveals is that God is patient. He's patient. Second Peter says this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the, with the Lord one day as is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Hear this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, <clears throat> as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. The picture that John gets of this eternal judgment and the, the torment and the smoke and the sulfur, that hasn't happened yet. So we back up one point, which means that there's still time to repent. And if you're not in the choir, let me urge you, turn to, turn to Christ in faith. Repent of your sins and be counted in the heavenly choir 
And once you do, you will have a song to sing forever. Well, this has been written so that with the eyes of faith, we can see what John saw. Verse 12, as we wrap up this morning. Here, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is for all who are disciples of Jesus, all who are the redeemed. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So what do we do with Peter further on in that same section that I read a moment ago? Beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So again, are you in the choir? Do you truly follow Christ? And if you are, then you have something to sing about. If not, then please repent while you can. Because the things that you're putting trust in are that are not Christ, they will, like Babylon, they will fall. And in the end, for those who have not trusted in Christ, who reject his grace, those who are all in for the beast in Babylon, judgment will come and it will be eternal. Now, final word from the angel for us today. Verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. And believers in Jesus, this is for you. Whatever you may face in this life, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed are the dead. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. I trust that that's you today. Let's pray. Father, it's a glorious thing that we who belong to Jesus, you have planted a love in our hearts for you and a gratitude for the salvation that we know is purely of your goodness and grace. So we thank you for that, Father. God, we need strength, and we hear this word today in order that we may be faithful. And whatever may befall us, whether it's suffering and persecution, even death, Father, we know that we are blessed indeed. Because not only do we get to sing this song now, but we'll sing the song of the redeemed forever and ever and ever. And we know that that will be glorious because we will be with you. Keep us faithful to that day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.